Hello and welcome to West Coast Radio. It has been a while, I know, and I'm sorry. It's been a little bit over a year since I last posted an episode of the program, and uh, I'll explain why in the next show that I do. But for right now, this episode is all about Bobby Bostick. That's who I'm going to be interviewing on the program. And if you don't remember, um, a year and a half ago, I had somebody named Damien Lenane on the program, and he was a representative of Bobby Bostick. At the time, Bobby Bostick was still in prison, and he was serving a 241-year sentence for a crime that he committed at 16. So um, the story goes, when Bobby Bostick was 16, so this is about 27 years ago, uh, he committed an armed robbery and was a part of a kidnapping that lasted for about eight city blocks. Um, that's That was the duration of the kidnapping. And during that time, Bobby fired a gun at a couple people, and the gun hit a couple people but really grazed them. There were no serious injuries, no hospitalizations, but Bobby was arrested soon after that crime was committed, and um, he was sentenced to 241 years in prison at the tender age of 16 years old by Judge Evelyn Baker. Uh, this took place in the greater St. Louis, Missouri area. So really, I mean, it's a miracle that Bobby Bostick was able to figure a way to get parole. And he worked tirelessly for 27 years to not only rehabilitate himself and grow into a highly productive part of our society, but also to figure out ways to draw attention to his case, uh, learn the laws surrounding um, his case, and find a way to get parole and bring himself back into the free world. So it's amazing what Bobby did, and I'm so excited to share his story with you. And um, I want to say real quick, check out Bobby's content. He makes a lot of content. He's an author. He does public speaking. Go to Dear Mama on Facebook. That's a Facebook page of his. Uh, he's got an Instagram called Dear Mama. Uh, I would just Google Dear Mama Bobby Bostic Facebook. Dear Mama Bobby Bostic Instagram. Free Bobby Bostic is his Insta is his uh, personal Instagram page, and he wrote a lot of books. He's a great author. Check out his books, Bobby Bostic Books. If you just look the, look up Bobby Bostic Books on Amazon, and you'll be able to find all all of the books that he wrote. Um, shout out to Damien Lenane as well. Damien's a great guy, and uh, he did a lot of work to raise awareness for Bobby Bostick's campaign to try to grant himself freedom. So uh, shout out to him. Uh, he was on my show, like I said, about a year and a half ago. The root of this story, though, is hope. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. Life at some point is going to drag you into the murky, murky waters. They're going to be deep waters, and you're going to feel like you don't have anything. But you do have something and you have hope. No matter what happens in life, nobody can take hope away from you. And that really is, I think, one of the roots of Bobby's story. No matter what happens to you, no matter how much you feel like everything is gone, everything is not gone. You've got hope and you can cling to it and make something excellent happen. So uh, this is Bobby's story. I'm going to make a note that the audio for this episode is not good. Um, we did this audio by phone and there were some wind issues. It may be difficult to understand at times and I'm very sorry for that, but at the end of the day, 
It's an interview that I think is really important. I think you can get a lot from it, so I'm going to share it. Hope you enjoy the episode. This is West Coast Radio with Bobby Bostick. Yeah, the first thing I want to know is, for the audience who doesn't know, what got you into this situation? So, you know, um, you were 16 years old when you're, when this story began? Well, audiences don't know, I was 16 years old when I was arrested for this case. By the age of 16, I had already started selling drugs, carrying guns, and I was in a gang. And at the time, I was staying in uh, somebody else's neighborhood, and one of my friends, a female, she was talking loud to some dudes from another neighborhood, and they smacked her, and, and she said she was going to go get her. So long story short, they, they uh, we went around there to confront the dudes. They said that it was a misunderstanding, we was going to put the guns up. In the process of putting the guns up, we saw the victims of this crime. Uh, it was a spontaneous robbery. It wasn't planned. We just happened to see them. And they was uh, on, the, on the block where we sold drugs. And the only people that come on this block is people that stay over there or drug customers. And they just happened to wander down this block. And we decided to rob them. Um, three, it was three attempted robberies. And two males were robbed. One was shot at. Uh, slightly grazed with a bullet. He wasn't seriously injured. And the other one, uh, we shot at the ground. Nobody was seriously injured. But 20 minutes later, we run around a corner. Another woman was robbed at gunpoint and um, kidnapped. Took about eight blocks and we took our stuff. Um, there was 17 charges altogether. And for those 17 charges, uh, I got 241 years. Right, and I want to get into that in just a little bit, but I want to talk about uh, your thought process at the time. You know, and I, I know, you know, the your brain isn't fully developed by that age, and you know, looking back on it, uh, your mindset's completely different now than it was back then. But um, wh- why did you go into this with the thought process of, all right, so this is an area where drug dealings happen; these people are on this street for no good, so that's why you know, I'm going to, I'm going to rob them. You wouldn't have done this to people that are shopping in downtown St. Louis is sort of what you're saying. Uh, no, I didn't know what those people was doing. Uh, we wouldn't have did it. No downtown, nowhere. It was just this neighborhood is a neighborhood where these type of things happen. And, um, it's it no excuse for what we did. It's just, um, it was a crime of opportunity. Basically. Why did you shoot? Uh, well, that was because of youth immaturity, right? Because mm. there was no reason to. Uh, person was a skirt tacket, and other than that, it was an impulsive, reckless decision that was uncalled for. I understand. My mom is a social worker, and you know, a lot of what what I learned from her career in social work is on the surface, you'll hear a story about somebody who is 16 years old. And, you know, let's say they, they robbed and beat up an old lady. And so on the surface, that's the story of who they are. And of course, they are responsible for their actions. But the social worker side of, you know, my mother, what she what she taught me was, all right, yeah, this person did this bad thing, but you have to look at their background. You know, they grew up in a terrible situation. They grew up with abuse. Um, you know, they had all of these things to overcome. And without a proper support system and a lot of trauma, you know, that sort of explains how they got to that point of anger, of being able to commit such a crime. Uh, again, it's not an excuse, but it does give more context to the situation. Did you come from a situation of trauma, a broken home, or uh, what was your situation there that led to that to that event? 
Uh, I'm trying to make no excuses there, even though I came from a uh, broken home and trauma and all that. But my brother and sister, on the contrary, we grew up in the same household, and they took a different path in life. They chose to work and keep jobs, and now they are, they are both homeowners of their own business. So it was just me and my little brother who was influenced by the street guys and decided to commit crime, and that led us to prison. And him getting shot and paralyzed and killed, and me... Uh, one prison at sixteen, him getting shot at sixteen. So, and it just it's just the the choice all boils down to the purpose. Even though the environment, you can be a product of your environment, but other people choose different. They grew up in the same neighborhood. I understand that, and that's very honorable. I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. Uh, but just for context, so the audience can get to know you at that time a little bit better, can you give me a little story about the broken home that you came from? Is that is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. Uh, also, I would like the audience to read my book. It's called Dear Mama. It's on Amazon.com. It tells my childhood of growing up in poverty. And I also would like them to read my autobiography, my memoir called Humble to the Dust, uh, Still I Rise, which is uh, available on Amazon, to get an insight and understanding of my story of why I chose his life at such an early age. And at that age, uh, growing up in, in the neighborhoods I did, uh, it was kind of like a wasteland. Most teenagers, we followed uh, role models, which was drug dealers. We wanted to have nice things. We wanted it fast. And those were the guys who had it and wanted to be like them. And I grew up fast like that. Uh, it led to me start petty Austin at first, killing cars, um, breaking the houses, and then eventually selling drugs and, and sometimes a robbery. And that's what led to me going to prison at that early age. Got it. Got it. What was your What was your family life like? Did you have a good family? No, uh, I grew up in on welfare with a single mother, so uh, most of me and my parents grew up like that. And the father wasn't there, so uh, the mother was she played the mother and the father, and that was typical in our households and our community. Okay. Okay. So how'd you get caught? I got caught in the car. I robbed the lady of her car and. We put out the car, and I got caught in the car uh, a short time later, driving her car, trying to go to the other side of town and get away. Gotcha. Okay. And one thing that sticks out to me about the justice system in general is, you know, as you're going through this process, you mentioned you're sentenced to 241 years, um, you know, and, and yeah. you know, it's an incredible amount of time. But one thing about the justice system that sticks out to me is sort of uh, you can you can pay your way to a reduced sentence a lot of times. So, you know, if, if you come from a wealthy family, a lot of times they can they can pay for a criminal attorney, uh, spend a lot of money. But your sentence gonna, is going to be greatly reduced based on the skill of the attorney that you can't afford. You know, we look at the O.J. Simpson trial, for instance, is a great example of that. Um, so. Can you, uh, do you, did, did that cross your mind at all as you were going through the court system? Uh, did you have a court appointed attorney? Yeah, I had a court appointed attorney. And were you thinking about that at the time? Like, man, you know, of course, uh, you know, I did this crime, but because I can't afford an attorney, this is going to be pretty bad for me. No, I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking that somehow I'd get out of it. I didn't realize the enormity of the, of the consequences of my actions. Okay. And so, you know, obviously you have to come to terms with that when the judge says 241 years, when she says that, what, what is going through your mind? Like what, what is your reaction? Uh, 
uh, wasn't no reaction. She told me her exact words was, you made your choice, you were going to live with your choice, and you would die with your choice. Because Bobby Boston, you were dying in the Department of Corrections. They don't get no clearer than that. When the judge said you're going to die in prison, and then she asked me, do I understand that? I was shit, shocked and numb. I was outside of my body. It was like I was looking at a, a scene from above, like death. You know, like, I, did, did she just tell me what she just told me? And yeah, she did. And uh, 27 years, I lived in until I was just released a few months ago. So yeah, she sentenced me to die in prison for those robberies. You know, you're 16 years old. Did you go straight to an adult prison? Yeah, I was certified as an adult, so they treated me as an adult. What what was that like going into the prison system? You know, at sixteen years old, what 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 were the first few uh, months like? Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, yes, you guys got to get used to a whole different element, a whole different environment in prison, which is a bad thing. You know? Yeah, can you can uh, you describe that in a little more detail? What your experience was like initially? Uh, well. Uh, going to prison at that age, uh, you, you have no um, experience or initiation in that world, so you enter into a whole different world. Prison was very violent back then. You had a lot of predators, so you had to be on your guard. You had to be ready to do or die. You know, uh, somebody can stare at you too long. You had to be willing to die for your respect. That's how violent prison was back then, and all issues got resolved behind the blade. You know, fist fighting wasn't good enough. So I grew up in a world of violence extreme violence and madness and that was the world I grew up in in prison so I had to get used to that and I had to deal with that and that's where I grew up at in that type of world man. So prison you know when you look up what is prison for in America if you google that what it'll say is prison is a place Uh for people who have committed a crime to be rehabilitated and prepared to enter the world again as a productive member of society but it sounds you know just listening to you and hearing you describe it it, it, it is all uh, uh, cliche all that's cliche prison doesn't rehabilitate the person man must rehabilitate himself mm. so that's what goes on the side prison prison is not a place for rehabilitation it's more so a place for business more than anything it's more of a business because uh, prisons don't rehabilitate itself a man must rehabilitate himself prison don't rehabilitate the man Okay. So, as I was explained in my books, the dude got to rehabilitate himself. He got to be committed to his own change because the system will not change him. Did you feel like there were enough opportunities when the man does decide to rehabilitate himself? You know, you got educated in prison. Um, you were able to write books. Do you feel like there were ample opportunities to rehabilitate yourself once you make that decision to, to correct yourself and make yourself a better person? Yeah. Yeah, the opportunities are uh, the way. Pre- I wish everybody who listens to this show can read my book, Life Goes On Side Prison. The opportunities are there, but it, it's the way prison is structured now, it's more of a game, and people have to play games because that's what the masses do. And uh, all those things are there the programs are there, the books are there, the study time there, the self time there, the, uh, the uh, solitude there to get yourself together, get your thoughts together, but people don't take advantage of those things in prison. As I was preparing for this interview, I looked up some things that happen when you first go to prison, and I had some friends who I was in community college with who were in prison, and I would ask them to tell me some things. And one thing that one person that went to prison up here in Washington told me, 
that really stuck out to me was the first thing you have to do when you go to prison is you have to join a race gang. You, you don't have a choice. You have to join a race gang. Uh, is that true? Uh, no, it's not really like that, man. Some people will uh, pretend to apply their pressure, but no, it's not necessarily like that. It's, nah, you don't have to join the gang. Okay. And Unless you want to be weak and follow somebody, but you don't have to join the gang. Okay, okay. And is there any way, is there any way at all, you know, let's say somebody is a pacifist. They just do not, they, they are just not down with violence at all. They don't want to fight anything like that. Is there any way to avoid violence in prison? Is there any way just to be a peaceful person? Yeah, it definitely is. It depends on the personality, right? Because one thing I learned in prison, I wrote about this in my autobiography that guys in prison respect two things more than anything, violence and knowledge. They respect the guy with knowledge because they may need him to help them uh, add the money up or they may need him to, to file legal work for him or file a grievance for him. Or, or divorce papers, whatever. The guy who knows more, he can move people with his mind and instead of him being a victim, he can use his mind to maneuver around the violence, right? And he can get those guys as allies, not as protectors, but as allies to where people know, okay, man, that dude does just like to read. He a geek, you know, all the book things and they will become more friends than enemies. You know, they'll be more of his, uh, seeking his knowledge and the things he knows. And, you know, so they'll do more of that than becoming because he becomes his enemy. So that type of stuff goes on in prison too. You can, uh, you view knowledgeable guys respect knowledge because, uh, they respect the serious religious converse too, because you sincere in your religious converse, they take a lot of discipline and prison is the most disciplined environment in the world. The whole structure of prison is, is about discipline. And you can really sincerely practice your religion and our guys respect that. And they'll leave you alone because it's like, man, this dude trying to practice his religion. He's insane. And the guys that's super religious, they're not punks either. They just change their life. And guys respect uh, guys who change for the better on their own without being forced to change. They respect that type of knowledge. So, yeah, a guy can get along and not just being himself. It may not seem like it, but if he just stays to himself and stand on his principles and morals, then guys will leave him alone. Every blue moon, he may have to hurt a few people to let them know he's not a punk. But, that's life in prison, but it comes with just prison politics. And the poli- the most deadliest politics in the world is prison politics. If you think streets, if you think politics on the streets is messy with the Democrats, Republicans, then you ain't seen nothing until you've seen prison politics. <laughs> Those are the most deadliest, dangerous politics. So if you can survive that, then you can survive a lot. I believe you. I believe you. Um, you know, one thing, I don't want to bring up race relations too much. Um, you know, it, it's not necessarily my style, but uh, one thing, you know, we're in Seattle. Seattle is a, a heavily political spot and um, race is a topic of discussion in every university over here and it's always on the news. And uh, just very quickly, and this is not necessarily my question, but on behalf of the audience, because I know that they're go- going to want to know, um, the judge that sentenced you, it's been a while since I looked up her name. It's Evelyn, is it Evelyn Baxter, Evelyn Baker? Evelyn Baker. She happened to be a black judge. Yeah, she's a black female judge. So, uh, did do, do you did you take that, um, her sentence um, in any other way that you would have taken a sentence from somebody who was a different race? Did you take that extra personal? Um, what are your feelings on that in general? I mean, uh, I just felt uh, right in my soul. I knew it was wrong. She gave me 241 years. It, 
it, it crushed my, crushed me, but it didn't break me. You know, I was determined not to be broke that day, man, but yeah, it hurt it, man. But what choice does a man have but to go on with his life, though? Amen to that. Yeah, and the testament of me talking to you right now, alive, free on the streets, sanity, books wrote, college degrees, inside prison, that goes to show the testament of my will to survive, man, despite what happened to me. It's like uh, things can break a man or they can make him stronger, and that's one of the things that, that made me stronger, made me to the man that I am now. So uh, on a spiritual level, uh, God allowed all that to happen for that purpose and also that law got changed behind my name in order for me to get out. Majority court said I couldn't get out. They denied everything I ever filed. They said I was going to die in prison despite me being a juvenile. The United States Supreme Court in the case of Graham versus Florida in 2010 said, if you didn't commit a homicide, you can't have a life sentence. Majority said, okay, well, he had 241 years. That's not a life sentence, which we all know 241 years is a few life sentences. Yes. But the state of Missouri decided to, you know, leave word games on the table and say, okay, well, you don't have life without you, so we don't have to do nothing for you. Eventually, the judge came back 23 years later and said, okay, I made a mistake. They looked up the records. Uh, I was a juvenile with the most time any juvenile in the state of Missouri, right? Um, and they was like, this is wrong, and who is this guy? And they looked at my record and was like, okay, this guy been in prison. He took over 50 rehabilitation courses, uh, college certificates, business management certificates, victim advocacy certificate, paralegal diploma, uh, associate degree, and he did all this with no chance of getting out of prison. So this man is, this is an example of rehabilitation, but he's stuck in prison and nobody was injured. Nobody went to the hospital. Nobody was seriously injured in this crime. So why is he dying in prison? No sex case, no rape, or nothing. Why would this child die in prison? And they asked the judge who sentenced me that, and she's like, okay, well, that's not the child I sentenced. That's a changed man. I think he deserves to get out. Um, the victims didn't oppose. Uh, the prosecutor wrote a letter supporting me getting out, and all type of other judges nationwide, and everybody came forward and like this is ridiculous. Politicians stepped up in Missouri, asked the governor to commute my sentence, which didn't happen. So eventually, they passed a law in my name uh, in Missouri called uh, Senate Bill 26, which was passed in my honor, in my name, and that bill allowed juveniles who were sentenced to over 15 years to go see the Pro Bowl after they served 15 years. When the law passed, I had already served 26 years, so they gave me a year out date in November 2021, and I was released November 2022, and I've been out here for a month, and here we talking right now. Something that anybody struggles with, you can be somebody who, you know, has, has been in prison, you can be somebody, you know, the president of the United States, it doesn't matter who you are, we all struggle with the concept of forgiveness, and you know, putting forgiveness into action in our personal life. And and one thing that was really touching was uh, there's a video online of it. Um, the judge was there to give you a hug when you were released from prison and you embraced her with open arms. Um, how did you find in yourself not to hold on to the anger? You know, that you, you, some people can look at that as, you know, you lost all these years, 27 years of your life um, because of this judge's word. And um, I know that she was part of the reason that you were released from prison as well. Um, but how did you find it in yourself to let go of the anger and forgive her? I never held on to that. I always, from that day, I don't know how it is, man. Uh, um, we, about my generation, we feel like we're not the turn of cheek generation, right? 
we would look at some people would look at the um, uh, great people in the civil rights movement that fought for all these rights for us. And they would look at them like, oh, there's no way I'm ever turning my cheek or allow all this to happen. But it's not turning the cheek when in your soul you know something wrong. And I looked at this lady and I knew right then and there, like, she killed my mother more than she killed me when she gave me the time. But that day forth, I was determined, like, man, one day I'm going to see this lady in the mall or something and I'm going to show her, like, this, look at my success. This is what I became. You know, you threw me away. This is what I became. And I never held on to any bitter feelings. The only thing I held on to was hope and the desire to get out of prison. And with that desire, I fought every day, like, man, what she did was wrong. And that led me to the law library every day. It led me to study books, like, man, this is not over. Just hope. There's hope. And then despite them denying this appeal, denying that appeal, uh, Assuring me I'm going to die in prison. I always had hope. Man, nobody could take that. And I knew I was getting out one day. And I fought for that all the way till the day I got out. So seeing her and hugging her, it was, it was an act of grace. It was an act of humanity. It was an act of humans being humans. Like, okay, you did what you did. Uh, now I'm here. Uh, God allowed me to become a better man inside prison. So I hold on to any bitterness uh, that would be able to take on to me. So it was like, Hey, lady, thank you for being here um, and helping me with this journey. And and God used you as a tool to give me that time to wake myself up. And that law allowed juveniles that would never get out of opportunity. Many out, hundreds of juveniles coming behind me in Missouri without dates that would never get out because of that law. And that was part of that she played in. So uh, I had to be a sacrificial lamb for other people to get their second opportunity that changed. And who who are these people can be coming and get out? They can become the, the policy maker, the change maker that every community needs. So uh, all that happened for a reason, man. So I accept God's will in that situation, and uh, she's forgiven. She's forgiven a long time ago. Prison, obviously, I can only imagine, but you know, it, it's a hellish environment. It's it's just you know brutal and and scary and difficult. And, you know, there's not a lot of positives, but I, I am curious, were there any positive memories? Were there any good stories that you could tell the audience? Did you have any good days? Did you have any good moments uh, or just positive stories that you'd like to share with the audience? Was there anything like that? Yeah, my best positive stories in prison was the very books I read, was the peace, was the courage that the other inmates gave each other against all hope the positive conversation that we had on the yard. But most important to me, the most positive things was the books I read, was the uplifting testimony I got from the books of pioneers, ancestors, civil rights movements, the American Revolution, uh, First Civil War, all those triumphs that people went through in life, real personal stories, people, immigrants coming over here with zero dollars becoming astronauts or becoming millionaires. Those things were my testimonies my most inspirational moments of prison. Let me know I can get to anything. Harry Tubman, slavery. Uh, you know, uh, everything that people went through, man, life, man. It gave me hope, like, man, if Thomas Edison can create a light bulb in 10,000 tries, I can try 10,000 times to file 10,000 appeals until I get out of prison. Uh, his life wasn't on the line to create uh, a light bulb, but that's the passion he had for his goal. So, if he can do that, then I can get out of prison. So uh, if I was taking the college algebra test and I was selling it in that test, I would sit down and remind myself, like, hold up, man. If you don't pass this test, then you, you ain't getting out of prison. That's how I would trick my mind into succeeding. 
And wasn't no odds gonna keep me from doing it, man. And you know, if there was one book that you could recommend the audience that you read that really had an impact on you, it sounds like there were so many. But if there's one book that you could recommend to the audience that you read while you were in prison, what would that book be? Okay, it was Taking Go Rich by Napoleon Hill. Okay, that book telling you to become rich is not only to become rich physically, it's to become rich mentally, and through that mental wealth, you can create financial wealth, or you can create spiritual wealth or you can create a great relationship, you can become rich in many aspects. So that book was my most inspirational book, and I see it written to this day. When you found a routine, when you were in a routine to help you pass this time in the most efficient manner possible, what was your daily routine like? Can you describe that? Uh, prison is here, no matter what routine you're going through. You see in the back of your mind, every second thinking about getting out of there, but I would go lift weights. I was doing college courses. I read books when I wake up go to class. It's just like anybody on the street go to work. In Chris, we go on with our lives, man, just like everybody else, but uh, it's, it's abnormal existence, but you make it normal as possible because you got to survive no matter where you're at. And Chris will teach you that. So you can take those skills and transfer them to the street and survive out here and what other people complain about or consider hardship to you is nothing. But another thing about growing up in probably in the stream uh, childhood in my extreme poverty in my childhood, that prepared me for the horses of prison. So growing up as a kid in those rough environments and poverty, that prepared me to live that life inside prison. So that was a blessing in disguise to live a horse life as a child. You, you really, you know, you, you, you dug yourself out of this situation. You worked really hard, as far as I understand it, to make people aware of your story and to learn laws and all of that stuff to, to eventually obtain your freedom. You know, you, you worked very hard to do that. What was that process like? How did you work to obtain your, your freedom? What did you do? Yes, um, every day. I had no resources. I had no money. My family had no connections. We had no money. Um, I just decided that willpower, man, would get me through, man. And with that will, I just reached out to the entire world nonstop until I found people who had power or position to help me get out of prison. Uh, uh, they didn't have money because money couldn't get me out of prison. So you would think that you would say that you can get a Johnny Coppin or a good lawyer like OJ had me to get you out of prison. In this situation I was in, that wouldn't have mattered because when you're guilty of a crime like that, and once you're found guilty, you'll see it's only one out of a thousand people that can succeed on appeal. So I wasn't going to be successful like that, and it was going to take a mountain to be moved to get me out of prison. But I believe in moving mountains, and with that faith, I moved the mountain to get myself out of prison. Is there any one story that you can share, um, just a quick story that you can share with the audience of your time incarcerated? A uh, story that I would like to share with the audience is a story of an enemy who became a friend, right? Um, the guys that I didn't understand in prison or uh, didn't have to take the time to talk to because we from different sides of town or uh, different everything, different ethnicity, uh, prisons divided, like you said, by race. Even though you're not racist, none of that. It's just uh, the law of the land that you stay away from certain people and vice versa because you don't understand them or their culture. But once you get around those guys, they just like you, man. It's like, why did I have animosity towards this man? Then I, uh, he become my most, uh, uh, the closest person I'm to in prison. Like, man, stay out of trouble. Uh, 
hey man, read this case, man. Maybe this can help you get out. Uh, that's the nature of prison, man. You uh, you will find people who are disunited who become united, and those type of forces can be powerful. Same way on the street, if you get a Democrat or Republican who get cross party lines, they can make a powerful alliance in positive ways to impact change. And the people I talked to in prison was people who uh, wanted to affect global change, uh, national change, local change, but we talked big in there. And that, that that's always implanted to me, to think big, to think great. And people out here look at me as I'm crazy. But one thing they can't deny, I don't supposed to be out here. I would never be out here if I wasn't thinking great. If I wasn't thinking about, thinking outside the box, thinking that I can achieve anything, I would never walk free. And my testimony and my struggle wouldn't allow hundreds of other juveniles to walk free or deserve, deserve a second chance for freedom based on their rehabilitation. They would never got that chance. It wasn't for the fortitude that was implanted in me through books, through study, uh, through belief in higher power, through belief in that anything is impossible, uh, through being uh, in, endurance, being one of those type of people who optimistic despite any odds against them, to be hoping against hope. If I didn't have the attitude, it wouldn't have gotten me to this point in life. So uh, that's a testimony in itself, man. And that's a good uh, serve anybody who listening well on the street, whether you're fighting cancer, poverty, disease, uh, abusive relationships, anything. You can come out of anything. If I came out of 241 years with my sanity and just grateful now I got a nonprofit I'm running. I'm helping kids stay out of trouble by going to juveniles and mentor kids, teach rights and workshops. All this was thought about in solitary confinement and now it's a dream come true. So dreams come true. That's my message to everybody. So what was the final nail in the coffin that got your story back to the judge who was able to say, you know what? I was wrong. I didn't understand brain development at the time. Um, we need to reevaluate this person, Bobby. Uh, what was the final nail? How did you, how did that get to her? Like that, what was the final nail in the coffin that allowed you to actually get on parole? Uh, the media itself, doing the research was contacting her and my lawyers reached out. They reached out to mutual people and the media asked her, what does she think about this sentence and this person who she sentenced? And once that ball went into effect, it went national, then it went international, and the story just wouldn't die. You're- yeah, the media, um, it can be incredible. You know, it can be bad. It can be, um, it can be deceptive at times, and a lot of people criticize it. But when people need help and the media catches hold, it can be an incredible thing, huh? Yeah, it can. Just a case in point, mine in general. So anybody just hold on to hope, man, and never give up, no matter what. And count your small blessings. You can be anything you want to be. So you're released from prison. Um, what do you do? You, you, where did you go when you got out of prison? I went straight home. I had my own apartment, so started off like that and went from there. And did you have did you have any money like when you when you got out of prison? I, I don't know how you know you said that you make very little amounts working in prison. Um, what was that like financially? Well, that was like saving my stimulus check and uh, money for my book sales. And from there, I just went forward, man. I've been out four months. I got a nonprofit. I teach troubled teenagers. And uh, I just network and sell books and do a public speaking here and there. Yeah, I do motivation speaking and take it from there. Do you, do you want to get married? Do you, what about, you know, dating and stuff like that now that you're out? Yeah, I've decided I have kids and 
and just taking things slow and living one day at a time, man. What's the hardest adjustment? No hard adjustment. It was the beautiful thing in the world. So for me, I've been waiting to get out here. So I, nothing, it's nothing hard out here. I just I wanted to get out of prison. So now that I'm out, I just thank thank God every day I'm free. Outside of the nonprofit, outside of the public speaking, do you have any dreams that you want to accomplish? Like what what's on your bucket list to uh, to do right now? So I got a publishing, I got a publishing company. Uh, I want to put more books out, which ways the stories of hope. And to help people achieve their dreams in life, and uh, that's about it. Uh, you you drove across the country. Um, you were in Los Angeles recently. What do you think about Los Angeles? Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear about what you think of you know these cities that you have experienced for the first time. Because uh, Los Angeles gets a really bad rap. A lot of people are are kind of shitting on Los Angeles right now. They don't like it because um, you know it's 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 changed a lot in the last decade or so. What are your hey. thoughts? Hey, I love Los Angeles. I love California. I love the people of California. I love their spirit. I love the way they dress. I love their culture. I love the way they think, the way they move. California is a great state, and I loved every day that I was there. This country is beautiful, man. I'm taking a road trip across country, as you can see from my Instagram and Twitter posts. Uh, I went from state to state, traveling back from California to St. Louis, and it's nothing more beautiful, man, than seeing the world, man, taking pictures like in the world for the first time in my life in 44 years. That was the first time I ever traveled outside the state and saw the world. So, man, the country is beautiful. Freedom is beautiful. Opportunities are beautiful. I just wish people would take things for granted and would appreciate their life more and not complain, but maintain and just enjoy the blessings of life. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I can understand what you're saying. Um, with your mindset, I'd be very curious to ask you because something that's on that's in the public narrative a lot right now is the concept of a nine to five career. And, you know, it's a blessing to be able to work a nine to five and go home to your family. I, I understand that. But one thing right now that a lot of people are pushing for with the four day work week, et cetera, is, you know, people are arguing, hey, a nine to five career is 40 hours a week and that's a majority of your life. You know, what's going on here? We need to make some changes. Um, what are your thoughts on the nine to five? Do you think that's an appropriate amount of, you know, 40 hours per week is a majority of somebody's life. And of course, coming from prison to the, to the regular world, um, you know, I can assume that you would look at this differently, but what are your thoughts on that concept when people go, okay, nine to five, 40 hours a week, a majority of my life doing something um, that I may not be passionate about, but I have to pay the bills when they complain about that idea. Do you understand? Oh yeah, maybe there are some issues. Maybe we should look to change this a little bit. Or do you go, you know, it's absurd that you're complaining about something like a nine to five career. Uh, well, I don't talk because everybody I know working on 9 to 5 and uh, they complain about it. Some do, some don't. Deals got to be paid. Everybody can't be an entrepreneur like you or I may be. Uh, I don't work a 9 to 5. Uh, I do part-time work earning that when I find it, but mostly I sell books. The work, I'm getting $240 for the 12-hour shift today. Uh, on the street, I'd have made that in three minutes with two, two drug sales, you know, but now I got to live a positive life, so I understand why people got to work nine to five, why they got to pay bills. Me personally, I choose a different path. I'm an entrepreneur. I was a hustler on the street at first. I took that same skill set and transferred it to a legit hustle. I sell books now. People think book hard to sell, but maybe it is, but if you determine to sell something, you will sell it. Just like I was determined to sell drugs, I sold them. 
Now I'm determined to sell books. I'm going to sell them. I'm going to sell inspirational speeches. Not only am I selling the service with my book and speeches, those things are inspirational things that change people's life. So I'm giving them something they can use the rest of their life. Whereas if I was selling the drugs, I would give them a high for 10 minutes. But now I'm giving them inspiration for a lifetime when they look at my life and my struggle and see if I can get through that and then write this type of beautiful inspirational poetry in a mix of seven, 241 years. Then they can do anything that they, their minds desire. So I'm selling true hope, man, true inspiration. And I'm feeding people with that and I'm sparking ideas and minds to help change the world. So, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, and uh, nine to five is not my lane. But um, in order to do the things I do, somebody got to work at the job where the detention juveniles at. Somebody got to work at the job to pay bills, just like my mother, and sister, et cetera, got to work to uh, keep the lights on. Uh, that's how some people live, and that's how the world is structured. Everybody's not going to be entrepreneurs. Some people is cool with being consumers. I ask people that, like, what are you passionate about? And they're like, okay, that's too much of a headache trying to, I run a company, uh, I'm fine just doing this. And some people are. So I don't try to force my entrepreneurial mindset on people. I speak about it and try to, um, you know, inspire people to think like entrepreneurs. But I, I know and understand that everybody's not cut up and made out to be entrepreneurs. So I accept people to the level that they had and hope they accept me while I'm there because some people can never understand me getting out of prison saying I'm not finna work a nine to five. And they're like, well, how are you going to survive? Because all they know is a nine to five. And they looking at me like I'm a madman, you know, <laughs> because I don't want to work. You know, so my lifestyle don't register with them. But I don't knock their lifestyle or think that they should change because I accept people the way it is. And if they can accept me the way I am, we'll be fine. But the only word I heard is you need to get a uh, nine to five. You need to get a nine to five. Some of them are well-meaning, but some of them is stuck in the uh, same mentality. They want to enforce it on me. Where I can see if I was getting in trouble, I'm, I'm surviving off selling books and speaking. I might not be, uh, you know, successful as I want to be. Or people telling me what about long term? But I think that uh, I'll catch fire soon and sell more books and do more books. So I'm gonna continue to do that and live my life. And as long as I can do that, then I'll be successful. And you mentioned that you you just got done working a twelve hour shift. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do to support the life that you dream of. Uh, have has gaining employment been difficult at all for you with um uh, with the criminal record? Uh, well, no, I haven't been trying. The places I've been talking to, people know I got a criminal record. So okay, um, and you know we'll wrap this up pretty yeah. soon here. Um, not too many more questions. Uh, I'd love to know has troubled youth you know you're mentoring troubled youth right now have they changed since you were 16 and you were a troubled youth yourself have kids changed um at all that you've noticed yeah they changed a few said that about us and we've lost no hope so they said about this generation but yeah, it didn't change this. Every, every generation changed uh we our mothers and sisters thought we was lost uh their parents before them thought they was lost so yeah of course they've been changed but it's not beyond hope always hope man kids and kids and we need to embrace them and study throwing them away what do you appreciate the most since getting out like something specific is it is it the food is it the fresh it's, air it's taking the shower taking the shower just being able to soak in the bathtub in prison we weren't allowed to take showers so I hadn't taken a shower in 27 I mean I hadn't took a bath in 27 years so I like taking a bath uh, sitting in the bathroom alone with no interruptions, man. It's the simple things in life, all of them, it's, they, it's no limit on any of them. It's the humanity of, of people 
comprehend how human people can be out here high by, thank you, sir, can I help you? In prison, it was, man, get out the way, what are you looking at? Don't step on my shoes, you're getting too close. Out here, it's beautiful, man. Life is beautiful, man. Well, I want to thank you for your time. Is there anything that you want to leave the audience with before uh, before we part ways? I would like the audience to learn from my story uh, that we can come back from anything if we just put our mind to it. We can create anything. Follow your passion in life. Let it lead to you where it may, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much you have to sacrifice to get there. Follow your passion, your dreams and desires. Don't make it all about self. Make it about helping others, too. In the process, you can get wealth or whatever it is you want, but don't put yourself before you put the world. Try to help others. Make an impact. Don't just die a nameless person. Make an impact and let your legacy be remembered for real. And use stories like mine for inspiration. Uh, you can follow me at Free Bobby Box on Twitter, Free Bobby Box on Instagram, Google Bobby Bostic. Uh, my books are available on Amazon. And keep following me and what I'm doing. And keep following your own dreams. Don't just follow trends of people like me, who's supposed to be whoever they is. Follow your own dreams and desires. And make people look at you because you got work too. And you can create greatness within yourself. If it's all in, just pull it out. Be your best self. And keep striving for your goals and your dreams. Sky's the limit. Don't limit your skies. And that was the show. Thank you for listening to West Coast Radio. Uh, thank you to Bobby Bostick for being a part of the program. And uh, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to explain why I took a leave of absence from West Coast Radio in the next show. So be on the lookout for that. There's going to be a lot of changes coming. And I'm really excited. It's bittersweet in some ways, but uh, that's all I'll say for right now. I will explain in the next show coming very, very soon. Thanks for listening. This is West Coast Radio. Good night.